Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Thursday, February the 6th. I got a good show lined up here today. Coming up in just a few minutes, I will be speaking with the province's seniors advocate. Isabel McKenzie put together a new report called A Billion Reasons to Care. The 50-page report was released earlier this week and found numerous problems with the way the province's long-term care sectors handle financial information. McKenzie says the financial reporting systems are inconsistent between health authorities and lack openness and transparency. The report also found that insufficient detail for significant expenditures related to management fees and sub-administrative costs were available. So Isabel is set to speak with me shortly to get into some further detail about all of that. In the back half of the show, the Business Council of British Columbia has downgraded its forecast for the province's economy in its latest BC Economic Review and Outlook report. The council now sees the province's economy expanding by just 2% in 2020. That's down from 2.2% in the previous forecast. Some of the key highlights include the 2020 forecast for provincial growth. Like I said, has been downgraded by that 0.2%. The BC job market softened over the last half of 2019, and that's attributed to the crisis in forestry and a very sluggish retail sales, adding to a weakening employment outlook. Non-residential construction remains a bright spot here in the BC economy, as are the technology, film, and television, and professional scientific and technical services sectors. And it also thinks that Canada's GDP will increase by 1.6% in 2020, largely due to record high population growth. But this report says that in per capita terms, the Canadian economy is barely growing at all and individuals and families are not much better off. So I will be joined by the Vice President and Chief Economist with the BC Business Council, Ken Peacock, at around the 35-minute mark of the show to talk a little bit more about that. And to end things off, it is Thursday today, throwback Thursday, if you will, hashtag TBT. And in honor of that, I'm going to take a very brief look back at a couple of major moments in history that occurred on February 6th. So stay tuned for all of that. It's going to be a good show. I'll be back with BC's senior advocate, Isabel McKenzie, after the break. So please stick around. opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show, and thank you so much for tuning in today. This week, BC's senior advocate released her latest report titled A Billion Reasons to Care. It is the first provincial review of the $1.4 billion contracted long-term care sector here in BC and examined industry contracts, annual audited financial statements, and reporting on revenue and expenditures for a two-year period starting in 2016-17. I am joined now on the phone by BC senior advocate Isabel McKenzie. Isabel, thank you so much for taking the time today. My pleasure, Jeff. So it's a 50-page report, so there's a lot to break down throughout this whole thing. So let me just start by asking this. Um, You know, for you, if there was maybe one thing that you wanted people to take out of this, what do you think the most important point would be to make? We need better control and monitoring of how care homes are spending the $1.3 billion we're funding them to deliver care to 27,000 seniors in this province. 
So when we're talking about better reporting, I guess, what exactly does that mean? I mean, what what kinds of concerns did you find when going through a lot of this data? Because there's a number of different things that kind of stood out when talking about, um, you know, how numbers are actually uh, put into the system. So what what for you are those biggest concerns that, uh, you know, you're not being able to get the information you want when looking at how things are being reported right now? Well, there were three main documents we looked at. So document number one was the contract that exists between a health authority and a care home. There are there were 174 different uh, contracts. Some of them followed a standard form, most of them didn't. And so you're not able to have confidence in the standards of um, uh, contractual arrangements between care home providers and health authorities. But that's, that's a minor issue and that is something that is a reflection of development over time. We looked at the audited financial statements for most of the care homes, for the majority of them, and we found them to be of limited value for a number of reasons. Uh, they don't give particular detail and breakdown between wages for direct care hours and wages for other things, and a number of care homes are part of a chain and the audited financial statements reported on all of the care homes versus each individual care home. And so they were not particularly helpful, although they are the only document we have that is, ex that is provided by an external auditor. Then we went to what is the most detailed reporting, which is we are calling them the expense reports. Different health authorities call them differently, different things. They're the semi-annual financials for some, they're the quarterly statements for others. But they are effectively a detailing of how the care home is spending its money, particularly what it's spending on direct care, and then other buckets. And what we found when we reviewed these is the first thing is every health authority reports everything just a little bit differently. One health authority doesn't require revenue reporting, it only requires expense reporting. And then we found that the calculation of direct care hours, everybody used the worked hour to equal a direct care hour, but then what they multiplied by that was a little bit different in each health authority. And we found the specificity of information related to some fairly significant expenditures, sometimes in the hundreds of thousands of dollars for some care homes for things like head office allocation, management fees, and, and big buckets on administrative costs with no details on how that money was spent uh, or to whom that money was paid. And so that was a big, uh, a, a bit of a red flag for us. But this is the most detailed information that we have, and so we were able to go through and, and analyze it and look at things from a provincial level uh, and look at what is happening with how operators are spending this money. And what we found was there was a pattern. There were, there were two distinct clusters. Uh, the cluster was the for-profit care homes and the other cluster was the not-for-profit care homes. And even though their public funding levels are the same, uh, there were some very marked differences in how they were allocating that revenue whether it was for direct care, uh, for profits, or for building expenses. There was quite a difference between those two sectors. Now, when you're talking about all of that, I mean, you're, you mentioned, obviously, concerns about how data is reported uh, in the industry, um, and, and you spent a lot of time going through a lot of different pieces of data when looking at different um, health providers and, and the not-for-profit versus the for-profit system. Uh, I'm just curious if there's ever a point when you were going through this data where you kind of maybe didn't have confidence in what you're reading, or, or maybe should that still be the case moving forward that, um, you know, obviously, this is the best data you have. I'm not saying anything against that, but is there 
there um, some question that comes into play with just how accurate some of these statements are? Well, these are what the care homes themselves are reporting. So when we're talking about what is your profit, this is what the care home is telling us is their profit. When we're asking how many care hours did you deliver, it's what the care home is telling us they delivered. When we say what did you spend on direct care costs, it's what the care home is reporting they spent on direct care costs. When we ask them what did you spend on um, building capital, uh, mortgage interest, principal depreciation, it's what they're reporting that they spent on it. There's no audit of that, so we are trusting uh, but not verifying that the care homes are reporting this accurately. And the care homes that are profit and not-for-profit are using the same reporting system in each health authority. So the systems are different between the health authorities, but they are the same within the health authority for all of those care homes. So you, one of the things we did take away is um, we, it's more around we, we know how much is spent on management fees because care homes are telling us what they've spent on management fees. We just don't know what those management fees were for and we don't know to whom they were paid. And when we look at uh, direct care costs, we're using the same reporting regime. We found that uh, not-for-profits were spending 59% of their revenue on direct care, and the for-profits were spending 49% on direct care. And the material effect of that is uh, $10,000 a year more for each resident in not-for-profit care homes. So it's 20, I think that's 24% more than what for-profits are, are spending on direct care, and that has me concerned. And when we looked at why, what is driving that cost difference, we found that on the reported hours of care delivered by both operators using the similar uh, system in all health authorities, and when we measured that against the report by health authorities to our office on the funded hours of care that they funded those care homes for, we found that the for-profit sector failed to deliver 207,000 hours of direct care and the not-for-profit operators exceeded their funded care hour t target and delivered 80,000 more hours than they were funded to deliver. So that explained to some extent that difference we were seeing, the 59 versus the 49. But the biggest driver of that difference was really when we looked at the wages and benefits paid. Um, to the um, staff by the care home operator, which is described in a calculation called cost per hour worked. And a cost per hour worked is more than the wage that a person earns. It is what does it cost that operator to put a care aid on the floor. And the cost is the wages and benefits, obviously, of the care aid that's on the floor, but also everything else, like their replacement cost, their holiday, their training, that sort of thing, all of their paid time. And we found that there was quite a marked difference between what a um, not-for-profit operator, what it was costing them for a worked hour versus what it was costing a for-profit operator for a worked hour. So then we looked at wages and benefits, which are not explicit in uh, all of the reporting. The worked hour is explicit, but the wage isn't. So we looked at the industry standard, which is known and which is paid by any operator who's operating under the provincial health uh, uh, facility sector agreement. 
And then we looked at the lowest wage rate we were able to confirm. So we don't know if it is the lowest wage rate, but we know it is the lowest wage rate that we were able to confirm. And what we found was that the lowest wage rate we were able to confirm for a care rate, and remember this is 1718, was $16.85 an hour compared to an industry standard of $23.48 an hour. So that's almost a $7 an hour difference. It's 28% less in the for-profit care home that was the lowest wage we could find versus the industry standard. So that is also clearly part of what is driving the lower percentage being spent on direct care. Some of it is, it would appear, uh, they're not delivering as many hours as they're funded to deliver. That's a smaller portion of it. That's not really what's driving the the major, that 22% um, higher rate in not-for-profits. What's mostly driving it is that the not-for-profits cost per hour worked is so much lower, and that is based on lower wages and benefits paid to the staff. And so the question is, um, we don't, is that a good thing or a bad thing? We don't know. Um, we do know that we are experiencing some significant staffing challenges in, in healthcare, mm-hmm. um, and we know that British Columbia as a whole uh, has, I think, the lowest unemployment rate in the country, and we see a lot of upward pressure on wages as a result of that. And so the question is, how much of the recruitment and retention problem that uh, many uh, private operators are experiencing is related to the wages they're paying relative to other operators? Because I think what's important to understand is they're paid the same rate by the health authority for the wages to pay. So the health authority says we have a funded uh, wage rate, and they're outlined in the report. Each health authority is a little bit different, but they're usually within a few, uh, a dollar or a few cents of one another. Interestingly enough, Interior Health has the lowest uh, cost per hour worked because Interior Health uh, provides uh, a lower formula for benefits. But we give the um, the operator uh, something in the neighborhood. I'm going to use care aids as an example. We might fund them to the rate of $32 for an hour worked of a care aid. But if that care home operator can deliver that worked hour for $25, they get to keep that difference. They get to keep the $7 difference between what the health authority funded them to pay the um, uh, health care aid and what they actually paid the health care aid. And I think that that has created some unintended consequences given the current labor market in BC. And so I think we have to really take a look at that. So a, a lot of questions that have been raised as a result of, of this data that you've collected in the report that you put together. So what, what happens next, I guess? What are you hoping to do with this information now that you've compiled it into a, a nice, easy-to-read report? Uh, you know, where does it go from here? Well, certainly the health authorities and the ministry are looking at this report. Um, The health authorities uh, were extremely helpful uh, in providing the information that was needed. They wouldn't have done that if they were not interested in seeing what this analysis looks like at a provincial level. It's the first time it's been done, Jeff. So, you know, it's like a lot of things. Uh, to be fair to everybody, health authorities, the province, and the operators, it's not till you till you look at these things systematically um, through the kind of lens we have here at this office um, to see 
you know, there there are clearly issues here. You know, one of the challenges always is, you know, inevitably um, there are going to be for-profit operators out there who didn't under-deliver. Uh, there's going to be for-profit operators who didn't make money, who aren't getting a lot of building capital. And conversely, there's not-for-profits. Uh, in fact, one, you know, of the 18 care homes that earned over a million dollars in profit, one of them was a not-for-profit. So that's why you do this kind of review where you say what is happening in the system overall because that's important for us to understand and to look for where we need to make changes. And I think that this will be a catalyst to um, raising the issues first and foremost. Overall, we really don't have a grip on how this money is being spent. And we really don't have confidence in the funded care hours that are being, the direct care hours that are being funded are being delivered. We know they're being funded. Um, we don't know they're being delivered. Uh, we have a self-reporting system, and we can trust that the operators are, are reporting. And I think my report talks about we need a trust but verify relationship with our contracted care home providers. So uh, right now we're trusting, but we're not verifying. And the other thing is that even if we trusted and verified on the information, certainly around building capital, the question is, okay, is this fair market value? And I think this big bucket of money sloshing around under management fees, head office allocations, when you also see significant administrative expenses, I think a lot of questions have to be asked about that, as well as uh, contractual relationships with related businesses. So some care homes may for example, have another company that supplies something to their care home, whether it's care staff or some other gardening service or something. Um, and so it shows as an expense to that related business, uh, but we don't know it's a related business and we don't know the details of, of what's being generated in that related business. And, and it is a problem particularly under direct care with these subcontracted businesses because it also distorts the wages. So the cost per hour worked of a care home that's contracting out its care might be 32 or $33 an hour, which is, you know, seems it's getting up there in the not-for-profits world, except that's what they're paying to the subcontracting company. The subcontracting company's then taking its bite of the profit apple before it's paying its employees. And so you're, we, that, that's why uh, I don't think we've really got a grip uh, on what the wages and benefits are in the industry for the majority of contractors who are not part of the master collective agreement, but we're funding them all the same. A lot to go over there, Isabel, and, and uh, you know we've been talking for quite some time here, so I think it's uh, time to wrap things up here. But um, I really appreciate you taking the time. I think there's a lot of good information in here, and um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to kind of see where this goes from here to see if we have more consistent reporting moving forward. I'm sure that's uh, the hope, and, and um, yeah, I just really want to thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you so much, Jeff. That was BC Senior Advocate Isabel McKenzie discussing her new report called A Billion Reasons to Care. It's a 50-page report and has a lot of interesting information, and you can uh, find it all on their website at seniorsadvocatebc.ca. Coming up after the break, the Business Council of BC has downgraded the economic outlook for the province. I will be speaking with its vice president and chief economist about that after this. to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com.
Welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Thursday, February the 6th. And thank you so much for tuning in. The Business Council of British Columbia has downgraded its forecast for the province's economy in its latest B.C. Economic Review and Outlook report. The council now sees the province's economy expanding by just an even 2% this year. That's down from 2.2% that was reported in the last outlook from the BCBC. I am joined on the phone now by Chief Economist and Vice President at the Business Council of British Columbia, Ken Peacock. Ken, thank you so much for taking the time here. You're very welcome. Yeah, it's been a little while. I had you on the show. I can't even remember how long ago. So uh, hopefully things are, are going well for you since then. Um, yeah, perfect. So, so Ken, your latest forecast here shows, like I said, that the economy is expected to grow by an even 2%, which is down two-tenths of a percent from the last time. So what, what is driving this decline here? What are some of the major factors that we're looking at here in British Columbia that has maybe downgraded that economic outlook a little bit? Sure. It's, uh, there's a number of things going on, Jeff. I guess probably most significantly when we're thinking about kind of trying to get a sense of how fast the economy is going to grow or the challenges in, in the forest sector, the forest industry space here in the province. It's still a very, very important part of the provincial economy. Um, it accounts for a significant chunk of our export activity. And, of course, it's extremely important to many of the smaller rural communities around the province. Anyway, that sector is struggling. Um, there's a number of reasons and a number of factors for that. But also, if you look at broader economic indicators, such as retail spending, such as total exports, the value of all exports out of the province, most of those have been trending down for six months, maybe upwards of a year. And then midpoint of 2019, the labor market sort of shifted quite notably, and the employment level in the province, the total number of people working in the province, started to slip and started to de decline. And we're seeing kind of widespread job loss at least across the services sector and the goods sector. So there's a number of indicators that are pointing to softer growth. That's the main reason we trimmed our growth forecast two-tenths of a point. But having said that, and we'll get into that in a moment, there's a lot of reasons to also be somewhat optimistic about the BC economy. Yeah, so... Um We'll, we'll start by kind of getting a comparator here, I guess, compared to other provinces. I'm just curious because it sounds like, you know, B.C., um, you know, although it's looking a little bit less rosy, I guess, than it was a few months ago, it still seems to be doing um, comparatively well when looking at other provinces. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, in our estimation, B.C. will probably outgrow all other provinces or be in, in second spot. It'll be right right near the top of the pack anyhow. And there, there's a number of reasons for that. There's, you know, there's a certain amount of resiliency in this provincial economy out here on the coast. We're much more diversified, um, both in terms of what our industrial mix is, but also in terms of the international markets that we sell or export our products to. That's much more diversified than the rest of Canada. So we sort of have this resiliency that keeps us ticking along. And, and right now, elevated levels of non-residential investment um, and there's the, the massive LNG facility being built up on the north coast of this province that's going to be ramping up there's a num number of other sort of um, engineering type large projects in the province so this whole non-residential construction space is really really strong and then there's other parts of the economy the industry you know different different industries around the province that are doing really well and the one that really jumps out right now is film and television that industry is growing at a pace that I have not seen industries grow at. It, it, it's, it, the expansion is incredible, and it's now really quite a substantial part of the economic base of the provincial economy. Um, I don't know if you looked into this, and then I'm just kind of throwing this out there, but do you have any reason as to why that specific industry is doing so well? Is it just people, you know, looking at BC as a good place to film, or any ideas? 
Sure, yeah, yeah. There's there's a few things going on. For a long time, BC has been a good place to film. We've got excellent workforce. They've got good facilities for film studios and whatnot. Uh, the time zone, being in the same time zone as, as Hollywood, is apparently a very, very important factor. It just makes it easier to do business. The dollar, of course, is a big factor. Uh, the Canadian dollar being around 75, 76 cents means productions, U.S. productions filmed up here at 25% discount. There's also a film and tax credit that companies who, uh, they get a tax credit on their labor input into film production. So that's an attractive incentive for, for people doing productions here. But the thing, if you talk to people in the industry that's really changed, is the streaming services, the Netflix and other streaming services filming their series. Um, there's just so much more content being produced now that the uh, amount of activity in the space in generally is really ramping up and BC's benefiting from that. So when we're talking about uh, daylight saving time here in the province and the potential of eliminating it, we better make sure we're on the same uh, same agenda here as uh, California, right, in order to make sure we yeah. don't lose that. Absolutely. I would be a very, very strong supporter of lining ourselves up with the states if they make the change. <laughs> um, so what are some of the other uh, global factors here that are kind of uh, working its way into this forecast? I mean, we're talking about some, some you know, the USMCA is uh, starting to progress, and, and obviously there's some concerns about what's going on in China right now. What are some of the, the global factors that are uh, involved in this uh, calculation when looking at a 2% growth? Yeah, so we're sort of abstracting at this point from any kind of coronavirus fears or risk, not clear exactly how that's going to unfold. So when we wrote wrote this up, uh, we, we mentioned it in our write-up, but we don't devote a lot of attention to sort of looking at possible mm-hmm. scenarios of what the impact might be. But really the bi- the biggest thing is the slower global economy and a slower global economic backdrop. The U.S. economy will probably perform the strongest out of the advanced economies this year, but still it's only going to go around 2%. And then nationally, if you look at the Canadian economic growth outlook, uh, down to about 1.6%. So that's really a muted pace uh, of growth. So we're not getting a lot of lift selling our products and services to, to these areas because they're slow, slower growth and slow down. China, likewise, is, is slow and I think it's fair to say the coronavirus is going to impact their growth rate and their rate of expansion this year. So it's this general kind of softness around the global economy that's definitely washing up on the shores and impacting our export sector. And then this retail spending, it's not clear why retail sales prior to about two years ago, maybe 18 months, uh, retail spending was on a tear in this province. People were buying cars, uh, very robust. It was growing 8 9% year over year. And like I said earlier, it's now down to uh, just being flat, no growth year over year. People are buying fewer cars. So the domestic environment softened a little bit uh, as well here in the province. People always want to talk about housing. Uh, We actually thought the housing sector was going to stay weaker than it has. It's come back more quickly than I would have anticipated, which is a plus uh, for the economy. Part of the reason why I don't think growth is going to go much below 2% this year. The non-residential stuff we spoke about, but also the residential uh, piece is not nearly as weak as uh, maybe we expected uh, a year or so ago. So uh, that's a bit of a plus. Um, Yeah. And then the dollar, I think the Canadian dollar is probably going to stay around 75, 76 cents. And that is 
generally good for the BC economy in that it helps our exporters be more competitive. It's good for the tourism industry, which I would also put in the column of uh, positive for the BC economic outlook uh, with the little asterisk of what happens uh, with the coronavirus that could have a significant impact. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Um, when, when talking specifically about the housing industry and just what's going on with housing sales, I mean, um, you know, the, the market almost seems to be playing catch up, right? When we're looking at how uh, the government has made some changes to, um, you know, taxes and things like that. And, and the industry has sort of been trying to adapt here over the last year, year and a half or so. Um, do, do you think that, um, I guess, how big of a factor is that sort of change uh, in just how people are going about buying homes and stuff? How, how significant is that when talking about the housing industry specifically and, and what we can expect here in 2020? Uh, you know, as, as, as the rules are kind of figured out and uh, the industry kind of adapts and learns how to, you know, better deal with, with the changes. I mean, do you see a, a, a recovery or a, maybe that's not the right word. Do you see a, a, a boost coming to, to those housing sales as, as the market adjusts? I do, I do. I mean, if we look at where sales are already, they have recovered. They they fell well below long-term averages, um, dropped sharply in the wake of some of these policy measures and tax measures. Um, and then they climbed back up. And, you know, over the past few months, sales activity has been above the long-term average. You've seen, 50, you know, year-over-year gains of 50 and 60%. So uh, I, I would say, like I said before, it's recovered more quickly than expected. And I think there's further upside. And uh, Probably the main factors behind the recovery was if you look you look back over the course of the past 12 or 18 months, interest rates did go down. They have dropped. And then prices backed off uh, in Metro Vancouver and some other parts of the province as well, but predominantly in Metro Vancouver. And the combination of lower prices and somewhat lower interest rates kind of changed the affordability picture. And that got people back into the market, particularly at the sort of entry level, low, lower level range. I think the upper level, the, the very expensive homes, more expensive homes, that market might be a little soft still, has not bounced back in the same way. But I, but I do see further upsides with the housing market over the next couple of years. Um, and, and one of the other highlights I took out of your report was just talking about the employment rate um, and, and some expected decline in, in both goods and services sectors. Um, the, the Business Council is forecasting an uptick in the employment rate from 4.7% in 2019 to 4.9% in 2020. Um, what, what are some of the, uh, you know, what, what can you contribute that to? Is it a big, is forestry sort of the big one there that's sort of looking at some um, increases to the unemployment rate or, or what other sectors are really at risk here when we're talking about people kind of being out of work? Yeah, the forestry piece definitely stands out as, as the most substantial and, and the one that's probably easiest to identify. We've already seen 15, 16, 17 mills closed down either permanently or temporarily. Uh, there's a strike, a protracted strike on the, on the, on the Vancouver Island here. So employment effects are, are fairly widespread. And I was looking at the job numbers fairly closely the other day. And, you know, for years, we've always pointed out and made made the point that uh, a lot of services are purchased by forest sector forest sector companies mining companies uh, in the in the metro vancouver area um, accounting services payroll services all these other you know consulting services and it's interesting if you do look at the professional services segment the number of people working in that industry growth in in, in employment in that sector has really slowed down over the past year so i mean it's a 
bit of a stretch to draw a direct connection, but I do think with this general slowdown, uh, difficulties in the resource space, exports falling, um, that you are seeing some knockoff effects in, in the other areas. So I do expect to see a little bit slower growth in the professional service segment. Uh, it's already showed up and that's likely going to continue into next year. Uh, but other than that, it's going to be little bits and pieces here and there, just not as much robust economic activity. Uh, you can identify it in segments that are in, in, the, in the goods industry, like we were talking about forestry, but to identify other industries or sectors as really being hard hit is a little bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. It's more a, a general slowdown. Well, Ken, uh, I mean, uh, as much as, um, you know, it's it's disappointing, I guess, to see the, the economic outlook sort of downgraded a little bit uh, year over year here for uh, the province of B.C., it looks like we're still better off than and than a lot of places here in Canada. And, and the, the average in Canada, I believe, the economic growth was looking at about 1.6%. So sitting at an even 2% is uh, definitely a positive, I think, to take away from all of this. And um, anything else that, I, that you want to add here before I let you go? Yeah, sure. I just... You know, the, the interesting thing is there are so many things that are kind of keeping this economy, the provincial economy, afloat. If I, if I had to assess some risks, of course, the obvious one is a coronavirus, but that's really so uncertain. I, I really can't assign any risks or probabilities to what's going to happen there. But absent uh, a full-blown pandemic that really does have widespread implications, I think uh, more of the risks for the provincial economy are, are in fact, on the upside. Uh, more building activity. We could see the pipeline go through, um, and you you could see some stronger uh, activity in the states towards the second half of the year. So there is some upside potential that we could come in uh, above expectations, which would would be a good thing. Perfect. And uh, just for informational purposes here, when's the uh, the next outlook going to be put out? When is your next report uh, expected to be released? Oh. We're doing these quarterly, so we do sort of in-depth ones uh, early in the quarter in the third quarter, and then we do sort of softer updates uh, in the second quarter and fourth quarter, so probably sometime in, in mid-April. All right. Well, I'll uh, put that date in my calendar, and we'll catch up with you then, Ken. Thank you so much for doing this. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Awesome. That was uh, Ken Peacock, the chief economist and vice president at the Business Council of BC, talking about some uh, expected economic growth here in British Columbia over the course of 2020. Coming up next, we're going to be taking a little bit of a look back here. It is Throwback Thursday. We'll look at the history of February 6th after this. So please stick around. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back here on Thursday. It is February the 6th, and thank you so much for tuning in. I thought, uh, you know, since it is Thursday and everyone's favorite hashtag on the second last day of the work week is TBT, which of course stands for Throwback Thursday, I thought it would be a fun idea to look back and see what has happened on February 6th throughout history. So I pulled up a couple of little interesting uh, notes here and thought I'd go through them. Since it is uh, NBA trade deadline today, I don't know if there's any basketball fans out there, but it's definitely worth highlighting that on February 6th, 1988, Michael Jordan beat Dominique Wilkins in the annual slam dunk competition. Of course, you can all remember that still image of Michael dunking from the free throw line. It's one of those most popular posters for kids growing up in the 90s to have on their wall. Uh, let's listen into the call here on MJ's perfect score. That's a 50 during the 1988 slam dunk competition.
took off further inside than he did the last time, but it's still a spectacular dunk and certainly deserving of the high score that he received, Steve. But Dominique Wilkins got the short end of a very impressive dunk. Yeah, Michael Jordan, February 6th, 1988, soaring from the free throw line like Superman there to throw it down and win that year's slam dunk competition. This year's competition is all set for next Saturday, February 15th. Uh, for me, it has lost a little bit of the flair it once had just because it feels like everything has been done. And now it's all about the props and more, you know, what is on the court as opposed to the actual athleticism of those involved. But still quite an entertaining spectacle either way and something I'm sure I will have my eyes on at some point next weekend. Looking back a little bit further in time when talking about the, the royal family, I mean, it's all about Harry and Meghan right now. They have you know, left the monarchy, moved to Canada, are trying to live their own lives. But before them, of course, it was Grandma, Queen Elizabeth II. On this day in 1952, 68 years ago, King George VI died in his sleep, which immediately elevated his daughter Elizabeth to the throne as the new Queen of England. George VI held the throne for just 16 years. That's a far cry from what Elizabeth has done. The now 93-year-old was just 25 at the time that she was thrust into the lead role, and she was, you know, 27 when she finally had her official coronation which occurred 16 months later on June 2nd, 1953. So 68 years later, Queen Elizabeth II seems to be invincible and continues to make public appearances and deliver annual addresses. And as we all look forward to the start of a new decade, it's worth remembering that it is often the small steps, not the giant leaps, that bring about the most lasting change. So now it's up to you to decide who has the bigger legacy. Is it six-time NBA champion Michael Jordan, who is widely considered the greatest basketball player of all time? Or is it the Queen? I'm a sports guy, so that's my answer. So I think you can figure that out. But, uh, you know, definitely uh, definitely the Queen. I'm sure that's uh, the more important figure in history. Well, a couple minutes left in the show here, so I thought I would end things off by taking a quick look at a new poll from Research Company. It shows that many in B.C. here believe the province will hold an early election this year. The online survey found that 51% of British Columbians expect to have an early provincial election this year. 32% do not think so, and 16% are undecided. And the younger you are, the more likely you are to believe that an election could be called early. 62% of those aged 18 to 34 are expecting an early election, compared to 47% of those aged 35 to 54, and 35% of those aged 55 and over. So whether you think it is going to happen or not, it's uh, you know different depending on how old you are, I suppose, and uh, depends on what you actually want. I mean, I, I don't know if I actually want one or not, but 52% of respondents say they would want an election, and 32% answered they, they don't. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I think we're looking ahead to 2021 at this point in time. Um, I was a, a believer in an early election was coming, but the more time goes on, the more I think it might, might not happen. The next provincial election is scheduled right now for October of 2021. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know that I enjoyed our time while it lasted. Have a great Thursday. We have almost made it to the weekend. I will take you all the way there tomorrow, starting at 9. So I will see you then.